During this week's episode, we answer the question, when can you massage following a concussion? My name is Connor Collins. I am a registered massage therapist and sports injury therapist, and welcome to the Concast, a podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body. This is episode number 89, and for this episode, I would like to answer a question that was brought to me through a forum on Facebook. A colleague of mine had tagged me in the thread saying that I might be somebody to maybe chime in on this question. And the question was something to the degree of somebody had suffered a concussion and the person was asking how soon after or at what period in time would you massage this patient or you could take it even in the context of manual therapy. When would I maybe have them do some chiropractic care or physical therapy on their neck or what have you? And it was really interesting what sort of spawned in the comments, as is usual on social media, where, you know, some people started to chastise this individual a little bit, saying, well, can't you make your own clinical decision? Or the other thing that was often coming up in the in the comments was, do you require a doctor's note if this is the case? And some people, again, chastising other people, saying that, you know, you can't make your own clinical decision, you need a doctor to, and this, that, and the other thing, and it sort of spawned a debate on social media, as it always does, so I thought I would take this episode to kind of discuss as somebody that works in this population on a regular basis and teaches as well, sort of management of this injury, I thought I'd chime in with just sort of how I make my clinical decisions, and maybe this might offer some value into the the space as to how maybe to better manage a patient that has suffered a concussion if you're not feeling maybe as confident in doing so. The reality of it is, is even as I take you through my rationale for how I do this, there's not really a straightforward answer. And it's always going to depend on a number of contextual factors that are involved in the person that's in front of you. So I want to preface this podcast by saying that as well as if you're an individual that's listening and you have a concussion or you have a suspected concussion you want to be examined by somebody that is well versed in managing concussions you don't want to be using this podcast as a means for diagnosing yourself or assessing yourself this podcast is merely just me walking you through some of my clinical rationale before we get into that I think it's important to understand what a concussion is. A concussion is a brain injury falling under the guidelines of mild traumatic brain injury, of which there are pretty much three classifications of brain injury, mild, moderate, and severe. And this is a biomechanical-based injury to the brain from blunt force trauma either to the head or the body that ends up causing systemic neurometabolic changes for either a short period of time, a longer period of time, and then Subsequent to that, the fallout of the symptoms from that can last or persist a little bit longer than even the initial acute injury. 
Again, this will depend upon the person, a host of factors, including history of prior concussion, age, general health, etc. No concussion is really ever the same on, on each individual. The way that we classify concussion is any symptoms that are experienced within 0 to 30 days of the injury. Post-concussion syndromes, typically 30 days to 90 days, and persistent post-concussive symptoms are three months or beyond. And we really, in the musculoskeletal world, consider anything without a expected prognosis that is three months or greater to fall into the persistent. This used to be categorized as the chronic category. So what I want to do is take you through maybe a couple of different scenarios as to how I rationalize these, because I think they're important to discuss in terms of whether somebody has come into your office and they've just suffered sort of an acute event and there might be a a suspected concussion versus maybe somebody that has been suffering for a longer time with symptoms of a concussion, let's say six months. So what happens following an acute blunt force trauma event, and let's just say it's clear cut that the individual has suffered a concussion. So they have lost consciousness and you don't have to lose consciousness to suffer a concussion. But if you have lost consciousness, the minimal injury that you would have is a concussion. And this is again, loss of consciousness with a very distinct mechanism of injury, blunt force trauma, For example, you can lose consciousness by being choked out. This doesn't mean that you have a concussion, but, you know, with a blunt force trauma and that biomechanical injury to the brain, this is the circumstance that we're talking about. Now, the other thing to note is that if somebody has had a concussion, they most certainly have whiplash associated with that. The degree of whiplash, again, will be variable amongst a host of factors and how clinically present and relevant that whiplash becomes will be, again, person-dependent. Some people will, let's say, be in a motor vehicle accident. They will have suffered a concussion. We know that those forces that have created the concussion um, far surpass force minimal forces for whiplash injury. However, they might not really complain of associated neck pain or cervical injury or cervical symptoms. So... You know, that, again, is something to keep in mind. So for me, following an acute injury is step one. Always have the patient's or person's safety in mind. We want to rule out red flags. So if the person has come to us and they haven't seen any other healthcare professional, if I am not as well-versed in managing concussions or I don't feel particularly confident, then these red flags need to be ruled out by another individual. And I always have a physician co-managing with me. I think that's important. That doesn't mean that I am relying on the physician to make decisions, but I think in terms of the way our medical system is set up within Canada, I think that it's important for not only clinical reasons, but liability reasons as a massage therapist. Further to that, I am unable to diagnose a concussion. So if the person's coming in to see me first off as the the primary practitioner, then they need a, a diagnosis. And based on my experience, even though I suspect that the person will probably get a diagnosis, it's not within my scope of practice to do that. So in terms of, you know, one of the big questions here is, well, has the person got an x-ray? Has, has the person got an MRI? 
And really when we're trying to rule out red flags, I often default to the Canadian C-spine rules, um, which is developed out of the University of Ottawa to try and determine whether people need an x-ray or not. So with respect to whiplash injury or any slip and fall style injury, some of the things that are discussed are severe neck pain, an individual that's greater than 65 years of age, a loss of bilateral cervical rotation, so unable to rotate the neck um, greater than 45 degrees, or something called rust sign, which is someone sort of sitting holding their chin up as if they're wearing a cervical neck collar, numbness in the extremities, or a substantial mechanism of of injury. This might include a high rate motor vehicle accident or a fall from a height. Now this doesn't mean that just because an individual has one of these that they would be given uh, a cervical spine x-ray. However, we look at a number of these factors and physicians look at a number of these factors when determining whether somebody needs an x-ray or not. And the means for an x-ray is to rule out something more substantial like a fracture, dislocation, in the cervical spine. Furthermore, in terms of things like MRIs, the majority of MRI imaging scans in individuals with concussions are benign. The vast, vast majority, greater than 95%. However, in high rate injuries, it's not necessarily that we're looking for concussion, it's that we're looking for things that are more substantial. So maybe a moderate to severe brain injury, this might include a bleed, maybe a skull fracture, cervical fracture, all of these things. And a lot of the time in high rate mechanisms of injury, there's not really a, well, there isn't a way to determine this based on physical exam alone. So while we have these guidelines, we can't, we don't have x-ray vision. And anyone that's even well-versed in emergency medicine or sports medicine that deals with these on a regular basis would say to you that if any sort of doubt is running through their head in terms of the physical exam or patient presentation, they're always going to err on the side of caution. And I think that as a clinician, it's also important to do that if we know that the patient is coming in with a mechanism of injury. And often in musculoskeletal medicine, we talk about mechanism of injury. Is it clear or is it not? Concussion is one of those things where the mechanism often is more clear than some of these other circumstances person will have a motor vehicle accident, they will have lost consciousness, they will be hit quite aggressively in a sport, or they will have fallen, say, from a height or slipped and fell. And one of the things that we know is that you don't need to necessarily be hit in the head or lose consciousness, like I said earlier, to have a concussion. The other thing that I want to take into account after that is things like upper cervical injuries. So what are some of these presentations if people have an upper cervical spine injury that we see in the research or some of the things that we were taught in school, a lump in throat or inability to speak or swallow, facial numbness and pain, resting double vision, gross ataxia or loss of balance in walking, or we can see listing to one side or falling to one side of the individual, resting nystagmus, which means the eyes are sort of vibrating in place, visually vibrating as you look at them or potential onset of dizziness and vertigo. Again, while one of these in isolation um, may or may not be a sign of upper cervical injury, I'm looking at all of these signs and how the, the patient is presenting in front of me and whether or not they have been to see their physician or an emergency room physician as of yet. From there, I want to answer the question, has the person been given a full neurological exam? This includes assessing the cerebellum, 
This includes assessing the central nervous system, the cranial nerves, and then when applicable, the peripheral nervous system. So this might be, again, let's say somebody is presenting with hand numbness or uh, foot numbness, then a peripheral nervous system exam would also be present. This doesn't necessarily mean that the hand or foot numbness is coming from the peripheral nervous system. These type of things might be picked up earlier, let's say on a central nervous system exam or cerebellar exam. But following an acute mechanism of injury, it's important that a full neurological exam is done. Why? In a concussion, your neurological exam is typically normal. This may bring about symptoms, and the feeling of symptoms feels abnormal to the person that's gone through the injury. However, we want to rule out, again, more substantial injury. And I think this is where things get a little bit muddy because many people just make assumptions. So a person was in a motor vehicle accident, they lost consciousness, they're now in my office, they haven't been to the hospital, but they're feeling foggy, they've got a headache. I make the assumption that the person in front of me has a concussion, and I don't do any of these. I don't do any red flag screening. I don't do a full neurological exam, and I just have them hop up on the table and I start working on their head and neck. And this is where I have trouble with some of the discussions around treating patients that have had a brain injury because they need that exam. And they need that exam to rule out the more substantial scary things. Just like we would rule out more substantial red flags in any MSK patient, things like cancer, fracture, progressive disease, we need to be doing this on a regular basis in our brain injury patients as well, or suspected brain injury patients. If this hasn't been done, it needs to be done by someone, maybe it's myself, and then I'm also referring back to the doctor for their opinion. Again, this doesn't mean that I require a doctor's note to treat. However, I think it's important that the doctor's following the patient at the same time. This might mean that I, I begin management, and we'll talk about what that means in a moment. However, I do want to make sure that before I start any type of therapy with them, that the person in front of me is safe and ruled out in terms of red flags and all of these other potentially even concurrent things, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So again, does this mean that you can't massage the person or do manual therapy, work on their neck or work on their body? It, technically, it does not. But if you, again, the circumstances, they come in, none of these are done, and they jump up on the table and you start working on them, are you doing this safely, I guess is the question. So let's now talk about a non-acute scenario. So let's say an individual has been coming or let's say someone comes into your office and they've been struggling for eight months with persistent post-concussive symptoms. And there are a host of symptoms that might be involved there. It might be fogginess, it might be eye strain, it might be feeling low energy, mood disorder, headache, etc. The two questions that I ask myself is, number one, has this full neurological thing been done way back when and if it hasn't that needs to be done still just because somebody has had more drawn out symptoms it doesn't mean that there wasn't a more substantial let's say cranial nerve injury to one of the the nerves that affect the eye and their a lot of their fallout of their symptoms is from that or 
was the concussion an environmental event that created some sort of concurrent problem that is now being overlooked? And or was there something that arose during this time that was unrelated to the concussion that presents similar symptoms? The most common in my clinical experience being cardiovascular health and cardiovascular conditions. So does the individual have high blood pressure or did they have a silent high blood pressure and the stress, the neurometabolic stress of the concussion has made it now more clinically apparent? So, for example, symptoms of high blood pressure include headache, visual disturbance, sleep disturbance, anxiety, which are all signs of concussion. And again, I have had patients with high blood pressure that have come in, and that was, again, once it was treated, their symptoms went away and they did a lot better. Now, this doesn't mean that this is, this is always the case. Have they started maybe new medication during that time that might have side effects? Have they entered, if they're a female, have they entered into menopause, for example? Is there the potential that there is a history within the family of neurological disorders? Things like that come to mind are MS, etc. This doesn't mean, again, that everybody that has persistent post-concussive symptoms doesn't have just persistent post-concussive symptoms. However, these are things that are again, need to be discussed and potentially just need to be ruled out in certain circumstances. Then from there I ask, are you confident that it's safe to massage the person? And are you confident that they've seen a practitioner during this time that has ruled out all of those other things that I previously discussed from an acute standpoint? And this is often really difficult to try and understand I'll first ask them after their injury, where did they go? Did they go to the emergency room? Did they go to their family doctor? And sort of what was done? Was there a physical exam? Did they get you to kind of stand on one leg? Or did they get you to walk? Or get you to follow their finger with your eyes, etc.? Just to try and see what was done. That kind of gives you a bit of an idea. If the person went to a physician or another practitioner and there wasn't really a physical exam done, and it, and it was just kind of a determination was made based on the symptom presentation alone, then I'm a little bit more weary. However, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to do my own physical exam. I'm always going to assess and rule out myself all of those previous things that I discussed, basically just for my own comfort's sake. And while I work with a host of other practitioners, they would say the same thing. Everybody should do their own physical exam because there are people, there are variances in physical exams and people make mistakes. And I am not an individual that doesn't make mistakes as well. So I think it's important that everybody is doing their own physical exam when the patient or person is coming into your office. The reality of it is, is that, and I think maybe this might be the most important point of the podcast, is the massage or the manual therapy itself is unlikely to cause trouble but poor overall management of a person is likely to cause trouble. And I think that's what we forget, that massage and manual therapy is so much more than what goes on on the table. It's the overall management and guidance that we have for the people that are in front of us. And so if we are sort of honing in on the fact that we are doing just the manual therapy portion and we're 
not doing a thorough health history, patient intake, looking at all the potential factors that are involved in the symptoms that they're experiencing. Maybe they have a prior mood disorder and there's a resurgence of that. This is where things get a little bit lost and and muddy. So that really kind of summarizes more of the clinical skills, clinical acumen side of things that I look at. I think one of the other things that's important, particularly in acute settings, is the delayed onset of symptoms is very, very common, not only for a concussion, but for really any musculoskeletal injury, and in this case, whiplash-associated disorders, within the first 72 hours. So if somebody comes in and they've just had a car accident, say, four to six hours ago, well, we know that that will change very much within the first three days. And this doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to get worse, but certainly in a host of people, it will get worse. And so do I want to be manipulating tissue and the nervous system during that time? I'll try and answer that question in a little bit more depth in a moment. The other important thing to note is that in the theoretical research of the cascade of events surrounding concussion, and these are in animal studies because we can't research them in effectively in, in humans, is the majority of this stuff happens very quickly inside of around four hours. But this doesn't mean that the symptoms, all of the host of symptoms that the person's going to experience are going to arise in the same time frame. So again, we know that there's a potential for delayed onset of symptoms where person feels fine within 24 hours or even the first three days, and then they go back to, to work on the morning of day four and they're a nurse and they realize that they're working with overhead fluorescent lights and there's a lot of traffic in the room and they've got to multitask a lot and all, the, all of a sudden they become very, very overwhelmed. The other thing to recognize as well is the goals of treatment are highly variable and person dependent. This might be dependent upon what they are struggling with. Again, in, in concussion and post-concussion management, the big three that we often harp on are mood disorder, either the onset of a new mood disorder or resurgence of something from the past that they may or may not have been medicated for, the disruption of sleep because we know sleep is just brain-saving but body-saving as well and one of the most restorative things that we have, and then headache being the most common physical symptom that people struggle with and whether they have a headache history, which complicates things even a little bit more. So what is it that I do based on all of these things that I've discussed? I want to see the person as soon as possible. This doesn't mean that massage begins as soon as possible. This means that management begins as soon as possible. And management and manual therapy are very different for me. Management includes education, what they've gone through, what the next couple of days may or may not look like, what's my involvement going to be, ruling out red flags, have they had physician management, what do their big three look like, headache, mood disorder, sleep disturbance, what can we do to try and mitigate some of those things or or reduce some of those things potentially in the coming days. But generally speaking, I'm not really doing any manual therapy inside of 72 hours just based on, again, how things can potentially progress over that time for the better or for the worse. The other thing is that let's say they come in to me on 24 hours post, they've had no symptoms, they're feeling pretty good, and then they get a massage, and then the next day 
is when their host of symptoms arise and then they associate the manual therapy with the symptoms, even though that may have been on its way anyway. Generally speaking, if somebody is very, very persistent and they want massage therapy done within this time frame, I suggest that it's very, very gentle and something that they enjoy creating no painful sensations or sympathetic drive from the nervous system, which may be difficult to do because they've just had this neurometabolic injury that ultimately ends up being systemic happen. I generally suggest that people focus on the hands, feet, head, and face, not the neck during this first 72 hours, and any other areas that the individual wants to try and promote relaxation and increase the balance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So the goals are typically intended on relaxation and downregulation of the nervous system, and this may or may not happen. I think it's important to recognize as well that while our intent might be to get the person to feel good and relax the nervous system, we might very well do this within the first 72 hours and it might cause them to go the other way. And that's just the reality of treating people. It Just because our intent is to do something positive, it doesn't mean that the outcome is going to be positive. I think that during this time, person education is key. This will vary across your comfort level and what your experience is, as well as it will vary across how the person is presenting. The other question is if they're very persistent and they want their neck worked on, even after you've sort of explained this delayed onset of symptoms, I would encourage sort of gentler techniques, maybe some low-grade cervical spine traction, very gentle, low-grade joint mobilizations, things like gently pressing and holding or these techniques that have been characterized as like positional release or just even taking the neck through some gentle range of motion, just making sure that, again, it's comfortable for the patient. It's not creating any sort of visual disturbance or nausea, which is common post-acute whiplash as well as concussion injury. So generally, I don't really force end range of motion for that reason um, during that acute phase. And that's kind of my advice for the first 72 hours. And, and from that point, it becomes with a, a good quality physical exam and the rule out of red flags, things can become a little bit more involved in terms of doing manual therapy. However, if I look at the context of, let's say, a post-concussive injury being 100%, Manual therapy for me is maybe 5% of, of the whole injury and, and how I try to help patients um, get on the other side of that. So for me, there's there's a lot more to it than simply the, the manual therapy. The manual therapy might be used in certain circumstances to maybe alleviate some of the concurrent whiplash injury and pain and discomfort they're feeling, as well as make them feel more comfortable in general and try again with the intent of downregulating the nervous system. So that's it really. I think that if any of the following things are happening, that there might be some, some cause for reframing, maybe how you're being managed if you're a patient or maybe if you're a practitioner, you've been managing concussions this way. I might encourage you to maybe look at some other resources is number one, if the person hasn't had a physical exam or they haven't seen a physician received a diagnosis and you're not doing a physical exam and just having the patient jump on the table and making assumptions, if you're suggesting that they'll be fine and they don't need an exam because it's just a mild concussion, um, first and foremost, there's no such thing as a mild concussion. 
a concussion is a mild traumatic brain injury. And the severity of a concussion is often based on the prognosis or the healing process. And so there's not really a way to grade a concussion, something that could be perceivably mild could cause somebody years and years worth of, of heartache. So there isn't really a classification of mild, moderate, or severe concussion. A concussion is a grade of brain injury of which it is a mild traumatic brain injury. So that's important to note. And then I think the easiest thing for practitioners to do is taking a blood pressure and a heart rate on every patient uh, that has suffered a concussion or suspected concussion, particularly if they fall into maybe a classification where blood pressure may already be a concern. So maybe they've got a history of smoking or they're a current smoker. Maybe they've got high cholesterol already or they're struggling with body weight or overall health profile. These are things that might cause you to check a blood pressure anyway. Um, or if they're currently being medicated for their blood pressure, um, this is important. Again, it's one of those things where is the nervous system, this neurometabolic injury that's happened, if they certainly have had a concussion, the event that drives the blood pressure even higher and gives these sort of more persistent symptoms, and that was the thing that needed to be managed. So really, to answer the question, there are a lot of contextual factors that go on in terms of whether or how soon you would do manual therapy on somebody that has had a concussion. And the reality of it is, is if you don't feel comfortable and you would like a doctor's note prior to doing manual therapy because you feel that that is a safer thing for the patient, then I don't fault you at all. And if you're well-versed in concussion, you're working within a multidisciplinary team and there have been a, a formal diagnosis and there have been a number of practitioners and you've done your own physical exam and you feel confident in the management of the patient, then I don't blame you either. I think, again, the circumstance that I just described where if individuals are taking a nonchalant approach to it, that can become maybe a little bit more problematic in terms of the person's overall safety and how they may or may not be successful in the their recovery. So my question for you this week is, does this podcast um, change anything in terms of how you might be managing people that have suspected concussions or persistent post-concussive symptoms? I'd love to know in the comments below. As always, folks, I hope that you found this episode to be of value to you. Have yourselves a great weekend, and we will see you in the next one. Mm-hmm.